Welcome to Croaky Voices. I'm Kate Carrigan. I pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation on whose land this podcast is being made and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people whose country is home to my guests. If you, like me, have had trips to the doctor for checks and tests and also been hospitalised for procedures or surgery, have you ever questioned the care you're given? Do I really need that test? Can I say no to that x-ray? What would happen if I didn't get that done? They're the sort of issues covered at the recent Choosing Wisely Australia National Meeting, which explored ways to reduce low-value healthcare. I think in the healthcare sector, it's not people expecting to have tests done. It's really the absence of the conversation between clinician and, and patient, which has led us down the pathway of overconsumption of stuff. We need to empower consumers, carers and support workers to really question what is happening and what's being prescribed for the people that they're caring for. This time on Croaky Voices, initiatives to drive down low-value healthcare and barriers to change, the need for top-down and bottom-up approaches the importance of engaging consumers, why tackling low-value care is good for the environment, and how ensuring young professionals learn to question and drive change from the outset of their careers, as is being done through a Canadian program. So how widespread is low-value health care? Global studies replicated in Australia have found 30 to 40% of test procedures and services are low-value or harmful. Someone who's been looking at the extent of the problem is rheumatologist and epidemiologist Professor Rochelle Bookbinder, who, along with orthopaedic surgeon Dr Ian Harris, has written the book Hypocrisy, How Doctors Are Betraying Their Oath. In our book, we have lots and lots of examples. So things that we cover are screening healthy people and finding cancers that may never harm people in their lifetime, for example, and then the cancers get treated. It also occurs in my field when people with minor symptoms get imaging that is unnecessary. People who have back pain or knee pain or shoulder pain, because we often find changes in these images that are part of aging and that are often equally common in people with and without symptoms. And unless you are aware of that, then that might need to unnecessary treatment that can cause downstream harms, including unnecessary surgery, for example. And then there are other examples such as widening of disease definitions and a example we give in the book is the widening disease definition for gestational diabetes that's resulted in no apparent improvement for either the baby or the mother but a higher number of people are diagnosed with gestational diabetes and that means they're followed more closely and it's increased the risk of medicalizing birth and then there are times when we treat risk factors for disease as the disease is in their own right in this the examples include in my field thin bones or osteopenia where we treat it as a disease that needs to be treated but in fact thin bones are also a normal part of aging and similarly when new diseases are defined and treated and a good example for my field is sarcopenia which is the same as osteopenia it's weak muscles that occur normally in people as you age 
at the moment, while the treatments are increasing exercise and strengthening the muscles, people are also looking at other ways of treating it that might cause more harm than benefit in terms of drugs. And Rochelle, you said in your presentation that uh, even though a lot of these concerns have been raised in a Grattan Institute report in 2015, you're raising the alarm, they raise the alarm, why is nothing happening? So I think there are lots of things that have been done that are trying to address this problem, but none of it has teeth, I guess. So there's things like choosing wisely that have got clinicians in different areas of medicine to identify things that we should no longer do. But there are still plenty of areas where that hasn't trickled down to other clinicians in our specialties or elsewhere. There is also a lot of vested interests and perverse incentives that reward the wrong care and and don't reward the right care. That means it's very hard to make system level changes unless this problem is addressed across the system. So I think we need regulation to change the system from above and then we need better ways of educating and influencing behaviour to try and reduce low-value care. So time for a top-down approach then, to make sure that that these things are brought in across the system. Yeah, I think education and trying to get people to change are all well and good, but it's not working enough. So I think it's time that we need more of a top-down approach to enhance and reinforce the other ways that we've been trying to change behaviour and improve care. Things like de-implementation and uh, conditional funding for new treatments, things like that? I think those things uh, would help. Not introducing new tests and treatments until they've really been properly evaluated and shown to be of value is another way. So there's lots of things that, that could be done. A lot of it though requires political will and requires large changes. Uh, I think we also need a culture shift on a societal level so that the general population understand that we're not taking beneficial things away from them, we're actually protecting them from unnecessary care and the harms that arise from that. And that's unfortunately a problem that we have when something's implemented into practice before we know that it actually works when we find that it doesn't work or it's harmful it's really hard to take that away because there'll be some people who still truly believe in it and patients will think that it's all just a cost-cutting exercise which is clearly untrue but it's hard to change those perceptions I think. Do you think that one way to do that will be to do what Canada has done with its student STARS program? Do we need to encourage something like that here so you have young medical professionals not only learning from when they're going through the education system but driving change? Absolutely. I think that I've been trying to reduce low-value care for a long time now and I am you know, pleased with the younger generation who seem to understand uh, that our health system isn't sustainable at the present time and also that healthcare has its own impact on the environment and if we're really care about the environment for the future generations then we really need to also reduce the environmental impact of our health care. And when you think about a third of medical care is unnecessary and another 10% is harmful, we have to remember that's also contributing to the carbon footprint of health care unnecessarily for no gain. And those young students, those young ones would really help in, in getting that message across and practicing that from the start of their career so that they don't get yeah. into bad habits. 
Absolutely. I think that science literacy among young clinicians is crucial because that is really the science of practicing proper medicine. If you understand what evidence is and what evidence can do and understand that it really trumps personal experience and you practice in that evidence-informed way and ask questions when you think, why am I doing it this way? What's the evidence for that? Is there a better way? Is always top of mind. And I think one area where I see it really clearly is when people order tests. If we had to justify why we were requesting a test, if we understood what the probabilities were before we ordered the test that something would abnormal would be there or we'd trying to exclude something, then I think that would go a long way to reducing unnecessary tests, some of which harm people through radiation anyway as well. And Rochelle, what about the importance of consumers in all of this, of listening to consumers and having them help in driving the change? I think they're crucial. I think we need the whole of society to drive this change. Patients asking questions of their doctor, consumers understanding what the problem is that we outlined in our book. I mean, that was really one of the reasons we wrote the book. We wanted patients and the general public to be much more sceptical about medical care. We didn't want to undermine uh, their trust in us, but we just wanted them to start asking questions of their of their healthcare providers. Hi, hello, how are you? Deborah Lediger is a Choosing Wisely advocate after personal early experience with the health system. It began when I became a carer for my brother who suffered a birth injury. But I found that advocating for a person with a cognitive impairment really, really challenging. And I was dismissed, not engaged with and overlooked for my experience of understanding my brother over a lifetime of growing up together. So that's where it all started. And what did that mean for you to be dismissed, to not be listened to? That's a really good question. I found that the further I got along the journey, I became very concerned and anxious. It affected my own mental health in a way, I suppose, because I became sort of hypervigilant. I was not feeling that he was in a good, safe place. I felt he was falling through the gaps and he was getting prescribed things that perhaps needed a review and it wasn't happening. And I could see his health declining. It actually made me lose confidence in the entire health system. I was told I was overly passionate, which made me really, really untrustworthy of the whole system. So that's what really got me involved. Well, tell me how you were introduced to the five choosing wisely questions and what difference that made in your life and your experience of healthcare. I became a member of the consumer advisory group at my local hospital, the health service, and a wonderful doctor as part of that, Dr. Simon Towler in Perth, introduced me to the choosing wisely initiative more so to understand what clinicians were doing to start with. But then I came across the five questions and it just made sense. Switched something in my head that, yes, it is okay to ask questions. And those people in the beginning who were telling me I was overpassionate and I shouldn't be asking so many questions were actually wrong. And I started to use them for myself to sort of level out the playing field a little bit and as a confidence boost because it is a trauma 
of being treated in the way I was treated. So why is it necessary? Should I have it? What happens if I don't have it? Giving the consumer the power, the go-ahead, you don't have to accept. Absolutely. And a lot of my friends and family now are aware of choosing wisely and I've shared it as far as wide as I can because it has such a positive impact on my life. We heard about some Canadian initiatives to reduce waste and undervalue treatments Things like limiting the use of catheters, reducing the waste of blood products and limiting benzodiazepine use. What kind of things would you like to see really looked at and looked at with consumers to have another rethink of how they're used? I think consumers don't understand the, the side effects of medicines that, that we are prescribed and taking as much as we ought to. I think there needs to be a big push to um, medicine literacy. Um, As we're getting older, we can often think that, oh, you know, I'm falling over because I am getting older and we don't understand anticlonogic effects of medicines. That's not just in the aged care sector, that's in the disability sector. Those medicines, antipsychotics and benzodiazepines and all of that class are prescribed off-label often to that group of people. You know, when I raise concerns about that, I was just told, well, that's normal, everybody has them. And I'm thinking, no, it's not normal. So I think we need to empower consumers, carers and support workers. Support workers who work in disability organisations need to be empowered to, to really question what is happening and what's being prescribed for their people that they're caring for. So if someone is falling over all the time, it might be a medicine rather than their declining health status. And how important is including the consumer in trying to improve the Choosing Wisely journey and trying to make it a better consumer experience? It's pretty vital, I think. They have a saying in the disability sector that nothing about us without us. That is pretty apt everywhere. I think everything that gets discussed and planned Uh, in health needs to have a consumer and a carer and a support worker at the table because they bring a different lens. It's just a magic ingredient. You can't design something well without consumers at the table. Keynote speaker at the Choosing Wisely National Meeting, Professor Wendy Levinson, is chair of Choosing Wisely Canada and also of the global initiative to drive down low-value care. She says there are a number of factors behind the problem. It's really a good question, and the answer is there are multiple reasons for it. Often patients request something like an antibiotic or an x-ray because they think that that will help give them the answer. Sometimes it takes longer to explain to a patient why they don't need that x-ray or those antibiotics, and so a physician may just think it's faster to give the patient what they requested. Sometimes physicians are concerned about being sued. Sometimes there are misaligned financial incentives where physicians are paid more to do more. But I always say that the most important reason is that we learn to practice a certain way. I've always done it this way. I've always ordered two units of blood when I give a transfusion. So if you learn to overuse, which many of us did, that stays with us. And you talked about a number of approaches that Canada has in addressing this. Can you tell me about some of the things that you are putting in place? Our goal now is not just to create recommendations, but to really implement change. We know also that a lot of innovation and change is local. 
one hospital may try to do something, one family practice clinic. Um, and those are all great. That grassroots effort is helpful, but it's hard to measure the impact of those things. And so what we've been trying to do is pick one or two things where we can try to change it nationwide. For example, we've been interested in reducing the amount of blood used. We know that up to 30% of red blood cell transfusions are not necessary. And of course, it's a precious resource. And also it can cause harm. And also I can tell you, I learned my whole career to give two units of red blood cells, that's the component, not one. And all the literature shows you can give one and then reassess whether a second is needed. So what we've done is we've worked with the community, mainly of hematologists and transfusion doctors across the country to establish national benchmarks. And then we asked hospitals to take the challenge to audit their practices and see how they compared to these national benchmarks and if they're not at them to implement one of a variety of interventions which we've helped them with and then to remeasure and if they can maintain meeting the benchmarks and maintain it we consider them a quote choosing wisely using blood wisely hospital so that's an example of what we now are calling a pan-Canadian program to try and really move the needle. I was also really interested in another one you spoke about, and that was benzodiazepine use in older patients. So uh, there have been uh, some really leading-edge researchers in Canada, a group that we work with called the Deprescribing Network, and they worked with patients and pharmacists. So when patients were having sedative hypnotics, benzodiazepines renewed on an ongoing basis. There was very excellent patient materials that they've developed. And there was also pharmacist involvement to try and help patients taper off. Now that is actually quite challenging to do. We've done some work in the inpatient setting that I think is easier to tackle because often patients get admitted to the hospital and they get started on these drugs in the hospital almost like automatically. There's just an order that the nurse can give a sedative he or she thinks it's appropriate for the patient. But we know that some of those patients get started in the hospital and then discharged home on them. So we've run a program now that is not a national program. It's more of a regional program. But we know that overall the message is getting out and we can see in some preliminary data that this rate of use of benzodiazepines in the elderly is falling in Canada. And I was really fascinated to think as something as, as simple as sleep hygiene on the wards and not waking people up as, as many of us would have experienced in hospitals for this or that procedure or test was a very significant factor in being able to reduce the drug use. Absolutely, because hospital wards are very noisy. Often the lights are on or a nurse comes in to take blood pressure in the middle of the night, or there are people out in the hallways chatting. And so there was a big effort in these studies to just have attention to lowering the lights, keeping the noise down, not interrupting people when they were sleeping. And these things really did improve the rates of use of these drugs. They also measured whether their sleep was worse. Nobody sleeps particularly well in the hospital, but wasn't worse if you didn't get a benzodiazepine versus if you did. So 
this was their way of preventing overuse of these drugs. One of the other initiatives I was really interested in was the the role of the medical students and the the STARS program. I just can't say enough uh, about how wonderful this program is. This program was started by medical students, three medical students who worked with us in the summer. And they came up with the name Students and Trainees Advocating for Resource Stewardship. And what we did is we got each medical school in the country, there are 17 in Canada, to come to our national meeting. And we spent a day with them, educating them about the concepts of choosing wisely and overuse, and also about how they could go back to their medical school and start to engage with the faculty and change the curriculum, embed this in many ways. And we've been doing this now for about seven years, and there are quite a few medical students who have become residents and even now becoming junior faculty members. So we kind of see this as a pipeline to changing the culture, starting with younger people as they train. Because like I said earlier, this is when the practice patterns get embedded. And I think what's really happening now is medical students all over the country are starting to feel comfortable asking the question, do I really need this test or treatment? Because before they used to think more was better and order every test that it, to rule out what it might be. And now I think we're encouraging them through their own initiatives to be more discerning and more thoughtful. And maybe they're pulling up their older colleagues too and making them rethink what they're doing. Yes, we say teach up. The students are teaching up instead of the faculty who maybe have their ways more set because that's the way they've practiced. So um, I think it's very promising. Many countries around the world have emulated the STARS program, Japan and Norway and Italy. And so this student program is also spreading. So that would be one lesson from what you've done in Canada. That's that Australia might take on board. What other lessons have you learned from the Canada experience that you would like to see drive change into the future? And not just in Canada, but in other countries as well. Well, you know, I think it's interesting to me. I feel that we've always been grassroots and bottom up. But over time, we have learned that that is very, very important and actually critical. But there are also systems drivers that cause overuse to get baked into the system. It is more efficient if we can try to change the system so that it helps to reduce overuse rather than trying to get every physician and patient to remember. So information technology that can drive change, even changes in payment in some circumstance. That's something I would never have said in the beginning. We very much avoided reimbursement as a driver, but there are some instances where it is appropriate. For example, in our country, folate levels are just really unnecessary because we have folate supplementation in our food. Right now, we pay, if a doctor orders it, the lab does it. That is an example where we could, quote, defund it. Another example of a system lever is with certain types of procedures. For example, there's really a lot of data that show that knee arthroscopy in people over 65 is just not helpful. It doesn't change the management in the most common condition, which is osteoarthritis. So you could have criteria to screen people. And if they didn't meet those criteria, you wouldn't be able to do a knee arthroscopy in the elderly. So 
Now I'm starting to think bottom up and some top down because physicians have established that this is evidence-based. And now I think we do need to make some system level change to be more efficient at driving change. I think another big question, and I'm eager to learn from other countries, is how choosing wisely relates to environmental sustainability. In Canada, 5% of the greenhouse gas emissions come from the healthcare industry itself. We are interested in working again with the medical students who are very interested in this to see what strategy we could put together. If there are things we're doing that are not helpful or even harmful to patients and harming the environment, then it's a win-win-win. Dr. Anagreta Hunter, I'm a cardiologist and physician. I'm a Human Futures Fellow at the Australian National University. It's interesting sometimes just to think again about what happened during the bushfires. We had had a year where it really didn't rain on the east coast of Australia. We had many conversations in the healthcare sector about how we could run hospitals where there was no water. Um, And that was certainly an active problem in parts of regional New South Wales and Queensland. And that summer of 2019-20, that was a two degree above the long-term average summer in, in the Australian context. So as we head for 1.5 or 1.8 or two degrees above the long-term average, that sort of summer can become normal. And what did that make you start thinking about wasted resources, low-value care and the impact of that on the environment? So... Uh, The Low Value Healthcare Association is one that we can make for a mitigation. It actually helps us to reduce our carbon footprint. So in the Choosing Wisely conference, I did mention something called Scope 3 emissions, and it's probably worthwhile just painting what those things are. Scope 1 emissions in the healthcare sector are the emissions that occur within the hospital. So that's the the use of anaesthetic gases, or if there is a burning of gas in the the hospital environment, some, some of our heating or cooling systems. So that's the stuff that occurs on site, that's scope one emissions, and that's a target for change. Scope two emissions is the energy that we buy in, and that's where much of our our conversation has been. Let's get our hospitals um, reliant on renewable energy. Let's try and decrease that carbon footprint associated with electricity. But that's only a small part of our carbon footprint in the healthcare sector. In the healthcare sector, the dominant part of our carbon footprint comes from scope three emissions. The carbon footprint in all of the things that we buy and consume. If you're a cardiologist and you're in a cath lab and you're doing angiograms, it's the catheters, it's the needles, it's the procedures, it's the drapes, all of those things have a carbon footprint. Now, obviously, using procedures and using drugs is a core part of medical practice and drugs and procedures and doing things to people uh, occupies a a tremendous benefit for our society. And I have to say, as a practising physician now for a couple of decades, this is how I have conversations explicitly with patients. The tests and the treatments and the paradigm that we approach management of an individual patient or when we're thinking about resource management at a, at a, a local level, we should think about how our healthcare is either improving quality of life, making people feel better, or how it's improving their life expectancy, which means statistically proven uh, benefits to reduce mortality. Can that be a difficult conversation to have with patients? They might be expecting the tests, the procedures. They might not be accepting of a system where you don't do as much. I've struggled with this question. It's like asking whether people are non-compliant, whether they naturally disregard what we tell them. I have a tremendous amount of faith in the people that I work with and the people that I look after. And I've never had a conversation along these lines of being quite 
explicit in quality and quantity of life discussions. I think in the healthcare sector, it's not people expecting to have tests done. It's really the absence of the conversation between clinician and, and patient, which has led us down the pathway of overconsumption of stuff. And I think for many of us as practicing physicians, when you open up space for patients to ask questions, do I need this test, doctor? What happens if I don't do this test, doctor? How is taking this tablet going to impact on my quality of life or my life experience? Expectancy. I don't think they're unfamiliar questions for patients. I think people often come in to a doctor's consultation with those questions. Often the problem in our health sector is that we don't create spaces for those conversations to take place. Now, a 90-year-old taking a cholesterol-lowering drug, is there a tremendous benefit to that as a primary prevention? They're difficult conversations and they're ones that, that we need to be working on training healthcare professionals and our healthcare sector to engage in with gusto. Asked about the need for a broad-based systems-wide approach to change, Dr Hunter says she's particularly interested in value-based medicine models of care, those built around asking patients what they want and how best to address the health issue they are facing. So if you have a sore knee, you go to see a doctor because you have a sore knee. And so the focus of that clinical interaction is how can we manage the pain and what can we do to improve your mobility? And knee replacement clearly has a tremendous role to play in managing advanced osteoarthritis of the knee. But when you make it into a patient-centred, patient-focused, patient-driven treatment interaction, you might find that many people choose to have a supported weight loss program or to, to engage in, in a regular structured exercise program with a physiotherapist to address both pain and mobility. And that the non-operative framework gives people a very good quality of life. It fixes their problem. I think a lot of our framing in medicine is around the stuff that we can offer. And so there's a tendency that when someone comes to interact with a healthcare service, that they'll get what is on offer as opposed to what they actually need to improve their quality of life or their life expectancy. Patients that I look after who have shortness of breath on exertion, I can offer them changes to medication procedures and imaging, and we can send people to have things done in hospitals. And sometimes those things are revolutionary. There are times where that is the only treatment that really should be offered. But there are quite a lot of cases where the other end of the spectrum of, of working with people on, on supported lifestyle change, on weight reduction, on increasing physical activity, that those things, at least in the first instance, can be really very effective. But how does our health system work in terms of its remuneration? Our incentives lie in the doing things to people. We're much better remunerated for being invasive on our hospital things than we are for our conversations in our office and for the building of relationships. So sometimes if you're trying to manage someone whose breathlessness is complex, what the best option for that patient is to build a working relationship with their treating doctor, primary care or specialist or a combination of those things, but to be regularly reviewed for, for us to share those stories on a regular basis. This is where we come back to the scope three emissions is it's 30% of the work that we do in the healthcare sector, which is low value, where it has only a small impact or no impact on people's quality of life or life expectancy. And then there's 10% of the work that we do in the healthcare sector, which is harmful. It does more harm than good. That's 40% of the work that we do. So if you're going to see a doctor or if you're engaging in a hospitalisation, particularly elective hospitalisations perhaps, what we're really looking at here is that you've got a slightly greater than one in two chance that that is going to be of benefit to you. Wow. I think people should be interested in this. I think that our patient base, our consumer base, uh, should be really interested in these discussions. How much do you think this system that you're envisaging could drive down the carbon footprint of our healthcare system? 
I don't think we really know the answer to that. There's a relationship uh, in many sectors between economic activity and carbon footprint, and 12.5% of Australians are employed within the healthcare sector. I think we're pretty low in terms of our carbon footprint per person employed, but out of that 7%, if we apply that low value number, we may see a 30 or 40% reduction in our carbon footprint by focusing on a value-based approach and cutting out low-value, no-value healthcare. For consumer advocate Linda Beaver, the idea of improved value care revolves around taking into account the situation of those in regional and remote parts of the country, how to ensure they get the care they need in a timely way while being mindful of where they live and their access to services. Linda spoke to me from her home outside of Jindabyne in the New South Wales Snowy Mountains. To access healthcare uh where I live, I'm about 10 minute drive out of town and there is no public transport. So access to even the most basic healthcare can be compromised if I'm unable to get into town to get to a GP or to the local pharmacy. The local hospital in Cooma is at least a 45 minute to an hour drive away. Most of the year outside the, the peak ski season, we have one, maybe two ambulances in the area. Personally, I feel the greatest complication I have experienced was when I became quite unwell and was told that I needed to have an urgent blood transfusion and there was no ambulance to transport me. My husband is unable to drive and I was in that situation where I had no choice other than to try and get myself to the emergency department an hour's drive away, not feeling well and potentially putting myself at risk. On many occasions, I've had people talk to me about the difficulty they have had when they have needed to access urgent transport for emergency service. And do you think that lack of service and the fact that consumers are reliant on what they can get, does that take away the power of the consumer in advocating for change? It does impact on it because There are a number of factors that enter into that. One is when you want to advocate for change, there has to be a realistic possibility that change can be achieved. If you are outside of the urban sprawl, access to services is incredibly limited and there is an unfortunate underpinning of attitude that you choose to live all that way away. It's your problem. Deal with it if you can't get an appointment or can't get to see us. Do you think that the choosing wisely way of trying to get rid of unnecessary procedures or even harmful procedures or low-value procedures, can that be applied in a way in rural and regional centres that will really make it better for consumers? Absolutely. Not that I would suggest that there is an excess of tests and investigation requests and referrals to specialists, but I think the accountability that we need to put in place is something that would help to reduce some of the unnecessary expenditures and journeys to access information or tests and specialist consultation that could be handled more effectively and more efficiently for people that live in the rural and remote community. And while it's not always in the best interest of focusing entirely on a telehealth treatment program, To be able to use it in a complementary manner is something that most people would really happily embrace. But once again, do I have access where I live? Is there a way I can access telehealth consultations 
through my local general practice so that there is somebody on site to be able to conduct some examinations perhaps or um, participate in a meaningful way and investigation that might be occurring through that uh, telehealth consultation. In one session you call for the training of healthcare coordinators. Tell me what they would do and what difference they would make for consumers. I think a healthcare coordinator could fit into the health system across its entirety, but certainly from a rural and remote perspective, having somebody who understands the system somebody who can be an intermediary. And that healthcare coordinator could be the person that says, well, now, hang on a sec. I have somebody that needs, you know, needs to travel three or four hours to get to this appointment. We need to negotiate a time that's going to work effectively for all parties. And those sorts of conversations are often best between people within the system rather than the outsider, which is the, the vulnerable, nervous consumer trying to negotiate with a staff member about an appointment opportunity. And they could also help with those five questions, the five choosing wisely questions, asking why do I need it, what will it do and what would happen if I didn't have it done. And that's so true because as health consumers, we aren't taught that we can do that. We aren't empowered to say, I'm not sure that's going to work for me. Is there another way we can handle this? So where to now for Choosing Wisely Australia as it faces the challenges highlighted by the forum? Catherine Birchfield is CEO of Choosing Wisely Australia and its parent body, NPS Medicine Wise. Well, I think one of the the values of Choosing Wisely is that it is this nationwide initiative and network that brings health professionals and consumers together to focus on addressing low value care and better use of scarce resources. So we've got the foundation and the language and the local ideas and champions that can very well affect national policy change and systems change, which was a big theme of Choosing Wisely National Meeting. So we've got all of that there already and we continue to bring in new Choosing Wisely advocates and members as we go along. And I think we have great consumer engagement. The program has the the foundations to achieve those aims, if you like, and those themes that came out of the conference. The key bit for me is to connect those local initiatives and the change that we're seeing with those policy levers. And key to that is working through state and territory governments, the Commonwealth government, primary health networks and other parts of the system that can enact that that broader change. Is there a role for Choosing Wisely in backing an initiative like the one we heard about from Choosing Wisely Canada, which has the STARS program, which engages medical students or came first from medical students and sees those Choosing Wisely approaches embedded in curricula so that the young professionals come out using them from the get-go of their professional careers? I would love to see Choosing Wisely Australia adopt an approach like that where either we pick one theme, one issue. So the um, examples from Canada talked about the blood transfusion example where it was one theme. They worked across many different organisations and agencies to drive a, a big change around that. You know, I would love to see that happen in Australia. I don't think we've tried that before through Choosing Wisely and I'm sure the Choosing Wisely team will be looking at that after the national meeting. But the other example that 
Canada Raise was the STARS example, the student example. And I love that idea. I love the idea of getting in as our future health professionals and future consumers because we wear both hats when we're health professionals. I love the idea of getting in really early, the, the sustainability of the health system. So I would love to see that happen here. And what would your major message be going forward after having the national meeting? My main message is that choosing wisely is a really important grassroots culture change approach that has a lot more that it can do, uh, but needs to come together with some of those policy and systems levers that we talked about to get really big change happening. I suppose my big message is it's difficult to do that policy and systems change work without the local buy-in, the language and the culture that Choosing Wisely brings. So for me, it's still such an important foundational initiative in Australia to address low value care, to get better use of healthcare resources and to get a sustainable system. I would really like to see Choosing Wisely adopted by all states and territories in Australia as an initiative that is used by health professionals and consumers to drive these issues and then see that then connected to policy and systems work. Talking politics now, and the federal budget defunded your not-for-profit organisation. How confident are you that the new Labor government will reverse this And if not, what is the future for both NPS Medicine Wise and Choosing Wisely? Well, we're confident the new Labor government will review the decision uh, and we'll be working with the new health minister once appointed to ensure that that review is comprehensive and that there's some proper consultation around the decision and the impact that it has on frontline health professionals and our consumers. It remains to be seen whether there is a reversal of the decision or whether that there is a different decision put in place. But the key thing for us is that We ensure we have sufficient ongoing funding to continue delivery while the review is completed. Either way, NPS Medicine Wise is working to ensure it has a future, whether it receives funding from the Commonwealth Department of Health or not, and is able to keep working with the sector to support quality use of medicines. That's it for Croaky Voices' special look at initiatives to drive down low-value healthcare. This podcast is part of Croaky Conference News Service coverage of the Choosing Wisely National Meeting. You can find out more by using the hashtag CWANM22 or at croaky.org for related articles. If you like what you're hearing, please follow, like and share and consider subscribing to Croaky News for just $80 a year to help us bring you independent and quality coverage of health news and policy.